Good morning and welcome to the Vicki Child Show PI Answers here on Hear Women Talk, which is part of the Zeus Radio Network. Thank you all for joining us today and I'm happy to have you. We have a very, very serious topic to discuss today. And in my career as a private investigator and prior to that in law enforcement, I've had a lot of clients who've been victims of domestic abuse and whose children have been abused or molested by both strangers and non-strangers. So this issue is of particular interest to me also as a teacher because I'm an adjunct professor of criminal justice and I, I teach all about violent crimes in my various classes. So I'm extremely happy to have great guests on today and great guests for, lined up for next week who are going to join us to talk about this very important issue, an unfortunate issue that, that I think needs addressing and I wish it didn't. I wish there, there wasn't the, uh, the high prevalence of domestic violence that there is. But unfortunately, it's there, and I, I'm glad we get a chance to talk about it here. If you know people who've suffered from domestic abuse or if you have yourself, you know how incredibly important it is and how hard it is for people to face. So I want to start out with a, a few statistics and realize this, that Statistics are based on information that's gathered, based on information that's reported. And the one thing you should know is that most cases of domestic abuse, domestic violence, are not reported. Or either they are underreported. And information is given not fully, but just partially. And, and it's a big problem that we have. But according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which is ncadv.org, Domestic violence is the willful intimidation, physical assault, battery, sexual assault, and or other abusive behavior perpetrated by an intimate partner against another. It's in every community, regardless of age, economic status, race, religion, nationality, nationality or educational background. One in every four women will experience domestic violence. About 1.3 million women are victims of physical assault by an intimate partner realizing that the number is probably much higher because most cases are not reported to the police. Females aged 20 to 24 are at greatest risk of non-fatal intimate partner violence, and more women are beaten by a spouse or intimate partner than are injured in auto accidents, rapes, and muggings combined. Also, 50 to 70 percent of abusers abuse the kids in the house as well. So those are... are frightening and, and horrible statistics to think about and probably are a lot less than they actually are given the, the lack of reporting in many cases. Today I have a couple of special guests, um, Rebecca Williams Agee from the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Abuse. And a little bit later on we'll have Holly Hughes who is a former prosecutor of violent crimes who's going to talk about prosecuting these kinds of cases. Um, Rebecca, uh, I'm glad to have you with us today, and, and I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and what the coalition does. Um, hi, Vicki. Thanks so much for having us. We are um, the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault is the statewide representative agency for our 23 domestic violence and sexual assault direct service centers. Um, we're a dual coalition. Uh, not all Every state has a coalition. Not all of them are dual. Some of them are separate. Um, kind of depends on money and state size and things like that. But we are a smaller state, and we have 13 direct service domestic violence shelters 
advocacy centers, that sort of thing, and 16 direct service sexual assault centers. Um, when I say that we represent them, that's exactly what we do. And, and by representing them, represent the victims that they serve. Um, a lot of what we do is uh, drafting and supporting legislation and public policy that effectively addresses the problems of DV and sexual assault to improve the final outcome for victims. Um, we do a good bit of extensive training for those member programs. There's 23. We also train law enforcement, judicial personnel, clergy members, health care providers, um, and business leaders when we can um, to get in there. Basically anyone within the state that could, or outside, but um, most of them are in state, um, that could come in contact with domestic violence and sexual assault victims. Um, we do a good bit with community education, public awareness campaigns, things like that. We started focusing a good bit more on um, primary prevention, which is actually something that is, is rather new to this movement, and that is having to do with, you know, starting before it, it happens, starting with those high-risk um, children, high-risk individuals, and trying to stop it before it goes any further. Um, and then just in general, advocating and supporting those member organizations through resources, um, lobbying at both the state and, well, I hate to call it lobbying, legislative advocacy at both the state and federal levels, um, and in increased state support across the board, you know, financially, um, any anything we can get. And that's pretty much what we do. Um, it's a, it sounds pretty to the point, but it, it tends to cover a pretty broad spectrum of things. And and you're you're in South Carolina, obviously, but there are there are organizations across the country in various states that that do what your organization does in South Carolina, correct? Exactly, and and most of them, like ours, were actually uh, we were founded in 1981. We're about to celebrate our 30-year anniversary, and most of them were actually founded by the executive directors, the direct service programs to to make a state voice for themselves. Um, because they found that, you know, they were working in their local communities and across the board in the state, things weren't um, even. There there wasn't that loud voice at the state level, and, and that's kind of how we came into being. Um, and, and most other coalitions are like that. So, yes, and, and, and there is one. Okay, and when when you represent these, you say you represent these different shelters across the state, these are shelters where if somebody is abused or threatened and or fears for their safety or the safety of their children, they can leave their home and go to these shelters and, and y'all provide safety there. Right, correct. And okay. even if um, they're not receiving shelter, there are also a variety of advocacy materials and um, services that are available. So they don't necessarily have to be in shelter to receive advocacy, to receive assistance, to receive counseling. Um, those are all things that, that they can get without being in shelter. But yes, that, that emergency shelter is available. Okay. And I don't want to, I don't want to stigmatize the, the word shelter either and make it seem like it's only there for poor people who don't have any place else to go. You, you provide services to anyone across the, the socioeconomic spectrum. Is that correct? We do. We have a, a wide variety of races, ethnicities, and socioeconomic status represented in our shelters. Um, you know, it is a common misconception that only those lower um, income groups are represented in shelter, but what you find is that um, even if a victim has, has family, 
Um, they may have, you know, the, the abuse usually begins by separating them from people that they love, people that they trust. Um, and so a lot of times those resources aren't available. And even if they are, that victim may be uncomfortable going to those people for help. Um, in actuality, that's actually much more dangerous, too, because the abuser, uh, the victim is in much more danger once they finally leave the, the relationship and um, the abuser is more likely to know where they've gone if they go to a family or a friend. Um, so, you know, even if the family has resources, it assumes that the victim has access to them, which in a lot of cases is not the case. Um, you know, there, there's that financial control that often comes along with domestic uh, violence situations. And so there, there are a lot of people um, in our shelters that would, may otherwise be considered, you know, higher socioeconomic statuses, but it, it's not, um, that's not the case that they, you know, are underrepresented because it is shelter. Mm-hmm. And, and y'all also, do y'all do outreach to, to children as well, children who've been abused or sexual, uh, have suffered sexual abuse? Yes, yes we do. Those, um, those groups and those counseling um, resources are available in these areas, in these shelters and in these sexual assault centers. And is, is that typical of the, the centers like yours across the country as well? Yes, it is. It is. That's that's pretty much the case across the board, and and there are a lot of um, requirements they have to meet in order to be certified as as shelters and um, direct service programs. Okay, so, so I want to from the domestic abuse uh, or domestic violence category. It can include um, sort of an umbrella term for for other things that go on, not just beatings, but also intimate partner rape. And, and abuse of the children and sexual abuse of the children. And so I want our, our listeners to understand that that your coalition services all of those people and the shelters provide refuge for all of those people and counseling. Exactly. Okay. exactly. And that, that also includes emotional and psychological abuse, um, financial abuse. There are a wide variety of things um, that, that are encompassed under that umbrella of domestic violence because – most often, these violent relationships don't begin physically violent. They begin as, you know, that, that emotional abuse, that over and over again, you're not good enough, why can't you do this right, that kind of thing. Um, like I said before, separating from family and support systems, things like that. And so, you know, you, you have to look a lot deeper than just the bruises because so often people think that that's the worst part of it when it, in all actuality, the you know, the... Internal stuff is the the stuff that hurts the most and, and lasts the longest. Okay, and when you have um, when you have sexual abuse and of of children or adults, mm-hmm. you um, they they of course go to a hospital or facility where they're examined. And I want our, our listeners to if you've never heard the term sane nurse s a n e sexual assault nurse examiner. I want you to tell the listeners what a sane nurse does, what they're trained to do, and how they are very important in the process. Okay. Um, Like you said, a sane nurse is a sexual assault nurse examiner, and basically what that means is that they are a registered nurse who has advanced education and clinical preparation in forensic examination of sexual assault victims. including, you know, prompt prompt care is very, very important in these cases. And, you know, anyone that's been to an emergency room and had to wait, you understand how 
frustrating that can be. And, and in a situation where there has been a sexual assault, it, it's compounded um, exponentially. So they, they provide that prompt care. Um, also compassionate and comprehensive, understanding the psychological trauma that comes with a sexual assault and um, understanding how to get, gather that evidence that, that might, you know, help bring that perpetrator to justice um, is, is very, very important. A lot of times, and at least in South Carolina, and these are, um, these are also present in a lot of states. I'm, I'm not as familiar with those, but um, they are a part of what's called a sexual assault response team. And what that means is it's a... Um, community effort. It's law enforcement. It's prosecutor. It's across the board really trying to bring, um, ensure that that victim receives justice, um, you know, victim comp- compensation. That's also a part of it. And so um, it, it really is a very comprehensive way to address a sexual assault and ensure, you know, as much as possible that that, that justice is served. Okay. And I've, I've been in court in uh, murder cases, what murder that also involves sexual assault, Mm-hmm. Where same nurses testified and and first responders like EMT and uh, uh, paramedics responded and the the information that these nurses are able to provide and the chain of custody that they keep and the collection of the physical evidence that they do is incredibly valuable to the prosecution because without it it would sometimes be difficult to make the case of sexual assault uh, whether it's whether it's collecting um, fibers or whether it's collecting uh, semen or, or, you know, vaginal, doing vaginal swabs. I mean, all of it is extremely important in the whole process. And a case can get thrown out really quickly if Mm -hmm. there's a bad collection of evidence or improper collection of evidence or improper handling of it in chain of custody. So, uh, Rebecca, we're going to take a break and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the the dynamics of, of why women stay in. This is something that we're going to address next week, too, with a psychotherapist. But um, in your experience, what you see, and we'll, we'll come back and go over some of those issues in our next segment. So stay with us, guys, and we'll be right back and, and uh, continue on. You're listening to Hear Women Talk on the Zeus Radio Network. Hi folks, this is Private Investigator Vicki Childs, host of the Vicki Childs Show on Hear Women Talk Radio. How safe is your cell phone? Is someone listening to all your calls or reading your text messages? How about your computer? Is someone watching all of your keystrokes? Or do you want to know what your child, your employee, or your spouse are doing on a computer or cell phone? If you need computer or cell phone forensics, do what I do. Talk to Steve Abrams at abramsforensics.com. Steve is a highly respected and skilled forensics expert as well as an attorney. Contact Steve Abrams for a free 15-minute consultation at abramsforensics.com. That's abramsforensics.com. Or click on the Abrams Forensics banner ad on Hear Women Talk and use promo code HWT. Welcome back to the Vicki Child Show PI Answers, produced and broadcast by the Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Our guest today during this half hour is Rebecca Williams Agee from the South, Car- South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Abuse. Before the break, we were talking about sane nurses and how important they are in the physical examination of children and, and 
others who've been sexually assaulted. Um, Rebecca, I want to move to um, a couple of questions that we have on the chat line before we get into the other uh, question that I have for you. Um, somebody had asked, is it just women who are victims of domestic abuse? And, and I know it isn't, um, but in your experience, do you have many men come through and and if they do, are they often embarrassed or or ashamed because they're having to admit that they are victims? Uh, yes, definitely. And and let me let me start this question or answering this by saying um, that the statistics we have from South Carolina and, and again it's just in the state, um, a female victim is victimized every twenty eight point two seconds, a male victim every four point three minutes. So Obviously, there's a huge contrast there. However, there are male victims. Um, and whether it's in a heterosexual relationship or a same-sex relationship, there is a lot of stigma attached to being a male victim because you're assumed as a man in our society to be able to take care of yourself, to assert yourself, um, especially against a woman. And what we see more often, and, and there is some physical abuse in terms of um, male victims. However, what we see more often is that emotional, psychological, financial control coming in coming into play because, um, you know, obviously in a lot of cases the, the man may not be physically uh, smaller than the woman. Um, that doesn't mean that she's not still able to physically abuse him. Um, and when it when it does happen it's it's generally more violent. So um well, in terms of slapping, things like that. Um right, but yes, right. we do we do have male victims. Okay. Yeah, we do serve. Sorry. You do you do serve men as well? We do. Um, okay. The the shelter may not be as available, but what we do, and and we as a coalition have worked um, a great deal with our local programs and working with a local church, working with a local hotel on a discounted price, um, because in the most likely situation, females aren't going to be that have been victimized by a male aren't going to be comfortable with having one there, and males that have been victimized by a female aren't going to be real comfortable being there. So. Um, it's it's that sticky line you have to cross and honestly we we don't have enough male victims right now who come forward that require a shelter um okay. and we just don't you know so but we do we do work to provide them shelter and, and assistance okay uh, another question that by Lynn on the chat line Lynn says that she wants to know if there are any long-term resources for abuse victims she adopted two children through social services in South Carolina and they are approaching the age of 18 but psychological damage from their birth parents is going to require a lifetime of service um, what what can you tell her as far as what's offered well I, I would say that um, you know if there was domestic violence in the home or child abuse in the home it may be worth getting in touch with what you know regard whatever state she's in um, getting in touch with that coalition and seeing what kind of local resources may be available um, if it's sexual assault the same thing you know those those traumatic events don't go away and the effects of them um, can be managed but um, you know a lot of times therapy and, and um, groups or individual therapy whichever those can be very helpful. It kind of depends on the area, what the, the resources are, but, you know, our, our shelters are free, and that's across the nation, um, and, and the services they provide are free. So that, that could be something she may want to look into, especially with them approaching um, adulthood. Okay, and, you, and uh, give the listeners your website um, address, your URL for them. 
Um, ours is S-C-C-A-D-V-A-S-A dot O-R-G. Okay, and that is the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Abuse. Also on the national level, there is NCADV.org, which is the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And I'm sure there are many others, um, and some that we'll talk about next week as well. The, uh, um, and also, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I just wanted to add yeah. in really quickly right there. Um, there is a national domestic violence hotline as well that um, is available and will help even if um, they're just looking for resources in the, in the community. That can that can help them as well. Um, and that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. And they connect to local agencies. So not just statewide coalitions, but the agencies in their local areas. Okay. Um, before the break, uh, I told you I wanted to ask about the the dynamics of why women stay. Also, one of yesterday when you and I were talking, you mentioned that South Carolina is number eight in the nation for women who are killed by men. Yes. Is, is that the correct? That's correct. Did I quote that correct? Okay. And and um, do you remember what some of the other states are that are worse than we are? I don't remember for sure. I want to say I know Nevada is up there. Um, I'm not sure that they're number one anymore. I know they were. Um, that report, the top ten states, are, is actually available through the Violence Policy Center, and that can be found at vpc.org. Okay, vpc.org. Yes, and they actually uh, release that study yearly, um, and it's usually based on the, the statistics and numbers from a year or so before, um, just because, you know, it takes them a while to get them together. But uh, it, it's a really good indicator of the status of women in, in general and, and how likely they are to be killed by an intimate partner. South Carolina has never been out of the top ten. Okay. And why do you think, why do you think it is that, that some of these states rank so high? Is, is there, are there just two or three things that you can look at and say, well, that contributes and that contributes? I can tell you they contribute. I using, South Carolina as a, using South Carolina as an example, maybe. Right, right. Um, they, they definitely contribute. You know, it's not necessarily the only cause. Um, in, in our state, for example, um, you know, there's a history of extreme patriarchy and a belief in the place of women, and it's gotten better, but it, it's something that is, um, that is there. You know, for example, in our legislature, we have the lowest representation of women in the United States, in our state legislature. And while those things aren't causal uh, necessarily, they, they are often correlated because it suggests the um, just view of women in general. And um, a lot of times, you know, very traditional um, views of family, what a family is, what a family means, you know, father is the, the head of the family, which isn't always a bad thing. However, you know, when that father is, um, controlling, abusive, that's when it becomes a problem. And that that's where we run into uh, a lot of issues. Okay. And in, in, in these cases that you see, are are there other things sometimes involved, not, not that that's an excuse by any means, but well, I'm thinking alcohol and I'm thinking drugs and mm -hmm. I'm thinking 
a bad financial situation. Do, do you see those things as contributing factors, not as excuses, but as contributing factors, maybe precursors in some of this? Or do you think that it's more than that, that these people come up as children seeing abuse and maybe just continue it when they get older? Um, the, the second is more likely. They, uh, while alcohol um, and economic fa- or alcohol and substance abuse and economic factors are correlated with domestic violence situations, they don't cause it. That behavior is there. Um, they may often enhance it, enhance the violence, enhance the or um, increase the uh, number of times it'll happen, the frequency, um, and again the violence. They they don't cause that behavior, and that that's often a, a misconception. So you're right. It's it's more that the behavior's there, and it, it's often just enhanced by that that other thing, that outside thing. Right. Um, what we do know, and, and I believe I, I said this to you the other day, but I wanted to make this point, is that with the economy, what we think we're seeing is that um, we're seeing more more victims stay in their abusive relationships rather than leave because the financial resources are less available. Um, they, you know, like I said, financial abuse is often a big part of a violent relationship and, you know, in, in the community and in society at large right now, economics are a big issue and lack thereof is a really big issue. And so, you know, fear that they will not be able to pro- provide not only for themselves, but if they have children, you know, that presents a whole nother barrier um, for getting out of that relationship. I, I want to touch briefly on the dynamics of why people stay. We are going to talk about it in much more detail next week. But why, in your experience, why do you see, particularly women, uh, why do you see them staying in these relationships when they know that it's going on? Um, I can tell you number one is fear. Uh, fear of increased violence. They're, they are told over and over again that if they leave, um, that'll be it. They'll be killed. The children will be killed. And and honestly, they are at a higher risk at that point because at that point, the abuser has lost control um, and wants to get it back. And often that's how they do it. Um, Mm -hmm. Fear of losing custody, fear of court involvement, uh, just in general fear. Resources, often a big issue. Lack of social support, lack of financial support, um, lack of a housing alternative, in general, resources are a big issue. Um, beliefs and cultural pressures, that may also be a big issue. You know, if you believe that you're, you're married and you're married to stay and, you know, it, it may not be the best, but you've got to work through it, that kind of thing, that may be, re- that may be reinforced by family, by friends. Um, those are big issues that, that we come up against or that, that they come up against. Um, often, too, and, and this is a, a big thing, is, you know, if someone grew up in a situation where there was, like you were saying earlier, domestic violence present, and they saw that as normal, the likelihood that they're going to see something different as normal is, is much smaller. Um, they, don't, they don't know that as their reality, and so they're less likely to look towards something different because they think that what they have is the normal reality. Right, and, that and that's the sense. normal way for people to act. So if they see their father acting that way toward their mother, they just consider that normal. Right, right. Um, And it's something you told me one of the times that we talked was that women leave six to nine times before they leave for good. Exactly. And I found that so awful to think about that, that 
they leave that many times before they make the decision to leave for good and they put themselves back into that situation so many times and and I know and I I don't have the personal experience with it I certainly have great compassion and and try to understand that but um but it's it's hard to to wrap my head around that that they go back that many times before they finally leave and and that is one thing too that we're going to look at next week when we talk with the psychotherapist and when we talk with Susan Murphy Milano who has written the books and and dealt with this problem personally and professionally for many years so I um, also want to throw out another website nsvrc.org that's the National Sexual Violence Resource Center for anybody who wants to get some more resources and and uh, they've got links and all sorts of th- information on there that you can find. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your insight and your experience and your your uh, your coalition and what they do. And if if anybody needs to get more information, um, I'll post these websites later on my PI Answers group, and y'all can have access to those. And uh, in our next half hour, we're going to be talking to Holly Hughes, who is a former prosecutor of violent crimes. She's going to talk about prosecuting these kinds of cases and what she's dealt with with the abusers and the victims. Rebecca, thank you so much, and I hope you stay with us on the uh, Vicki Child Show. We'll be right back for Hear Women Talk, produced by the Zeus Radio Network. Hi folks, this is Private Investigator Vicki Childs, host of the Vicki Childs Show on Hear Women Talk Radio. How safe is your cell phone? Is someone listening to all your calls or reading your text messages? How about your computer? Is someone watching all of your keystrokes? Or do you want to know what your child, your employee, or your spouse are doing on a computer or cell phone? If you need computer or cell phone forensics, do what I do. Talk to Steve Abrams at abramsforensics.com. Steve is a highly respected and skilled forensics expert as well as an attorney. Contact Steve Abrams for a free 15-minute consultation at abramsforensics.com. That's abramsforensics.com. Or click on the Abrams Forensics banner ad on Hear Women Talk and use promo code HWT. Welcome back to PI Answers. I'm Vicki Childs, your host. And in our second half hour today, talking about domestic violence, we have former prosecutor and Atlanta attorney Holly Hughes. Um, in Holly's former life as a prosecutor, she she prosecuted many violent crimes, many types of violent crimes, and has had a lot of experience prosecuting the abusers, the domestic violence abusers. Um, she's frequently seen on the Nancy Grace show. You've probably seen her there. And uh, Holly, welcome. And I, I want you to... Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, thank you, Vicki. First of all, thanks for having me on, and more importantly, thank you for highlighting this topic. It is an epidemic in this country where people are beating their wives and their spouses and you know their uh, their partners. So I really want to give you the proper respect and thanks for having this this program on. So. I began my life as a prosecutor here in Atlanta, Georgia, which, as most of you all know, is one of the busiest prosecutors' offices in the country, and uh, started out with felonies, doing all sorts of um, armed robberies and aggravated assaults and that kind of thing, and then moved up into the homicide unit, where I prosecuted homicides, and I did have the honor of starting the first hate crimes unit in the state of Georgia once we passed legislation 
to prosecute people who perpetrated hate crimes. So I was um, able to do that and prosecuted the first hate crimes in the state of Georgia and uh, did rape cases, high-profile cases, multiple murders, spree murders, death penalties, all that type of thing. I spent 10 years doing that and then went into private practice, but I also am still very active in assisting victims. I have uh, two partners, and we do a Monday night radio show called Intimate Partner Homicide on Blog Talk Radio. And what we do, Vicki, is we highlight cases that have gone cold, where no one is helping these victims' families, no one is assisting them, no one even believes it was a murder. Sometimes there aren't even murder cases open. So what we do is we have our listeners send us information if they'd like us to profile a case, and we try and bring attention to these cases where... You know, for a multitude of reasons, there might be a good old boy network happening. You know, people might just think, oh, the mother's hysterical. She can't accept that it was an accident. And so we try and get them justice for their loved ones that have been murdered. So it's a passion of mine. It's my life's work. And it's it's just really important that we educate people and let them know that they don't have to live like this. Exactly, and that's what I hope that the listeners get from this is a sense of education and also empowerment. And in in your prosecution of of um, abusers, I, I I want the listeners to understand that number one, it's very difficult sometimes, and number two, it's very very difficult to be a victim because you're torn. You don't know whether to take the guy back or, or recant or uh, you know, feel sorry for him, and I want you to talk a little bit about when you've prosecuted these abusers, how is it, what have you seen them be like, the abusers be like in the court proceedings, and also the victims and where they're coming from? Well, by the time they get to court, they have realized they are in deep trouble, because here's the thing with domestic violence. Most of it is not reported, and most of it never makes it to a courtroom because the victims of this type of abuse are in a special category. It's what I call DIM, okay, D-I-M, and life seems very dim to them. And that stands for denigration, isolation, and manipulation. And that's what's been done to them. It's not just the smack upside the head. It's not the kick to the stomach. It is that denigration day after day where they are told you are no good, nobody else wants you, you are fat, you are ugly, you're a lousy mother, if you try to leave me, I'll take the kids away from you. It is just that over and over and over, it's psychological warfare is what it is. And these poor victims, by the time they get into a courtroom, have been so abused on so many levels that they don't feel strong enough to stand up and fight. So, you know, by the time it gets there, the defendant, number one, realizes, oh, man, have I really stepped in it. Because up until this point, he hasn't been hauled into court. He hasn't been made to answer for what he's done. He has gotten away with it thus far. So he's going to come in with his Sunday church clothes on, and he's going to say how sorry he is, and he'll go to a program, and he'll get counseling. And, you know, it's a lot of lip service, and we know that, because what we see with abusers is they always Escalate. I've never seen a de-escalation unless there is a professional intervention, unless these men do go to a certified counseling program, get the help that they need, and it is a long, difficult process. So by the time you get to a courtroom, the defendants are all meek and mild and acting like, oh, it was just a one-time thing. I could never hit a woman. The victims are terrified, Vicki. And you mentioned recantation, and we see this all the time. It is more often than not that a victim will recant because she is, number one, terrified for her own physical safety. 
Number two, terrified for her children's physical safety or possibly her parents. One of the things, you know, the second thing after the denigration that we talked about is the I, that's the isolation. These abusers have told these women, you know, nobody wants to see you. You can't have friends over to the house. I don't want you going out. I want to know where you are every second of the day. And when you isolate somebody and there is nobody telling them, this guy's lying to you. You are worthwhile. You are a good person. You are a great mother. When there is nobody backing them up, they tend to believe it. So they have been isolated. They don't have anybody to reach out to. And what the abuser is saying is, if you go forward with this, I'll kill your mother. I'll kill your kids. I'll kill, you know, whoever. Mm -hmm. So they are scared for others' physical safety, and they're terrified that maybe he's right. Because for years they've been talked down to and they've been abused physically and psychologically. And so they're scared that I'm not going to be able to get a job because he doesn't let her go outside the house to work. Her job is to be there for him 24-7 and wait on him. So she is afraid I'm not going to be able to support my kids. Where are we going to go? I have nobody to turn to. And so there's a whole host of things going on with this poor woman by the time she gets to a courtroom proceeding. And she doesn't want to be there. Let me tell you something. She has refused to testify. She has sat down with us and told us, I'm not going in there. And unfortunately, we have to force her to. We have to put her on the stand. You know, one of the things I'm always very strong about when I prosecute those cases is telling the defense attorney and saying to the defendant or saying to the defense attorney in front of the defendant, I made her do this. I put her under subpoena. She doesn't mm-hmm. want to be here. She's doing this against her will. It's me forcing her to come into this courtroom, you know, and trying to alleviate a little bit of the pressure off of her. But I make sure the defense attorney and his client know that this is my choice to prosecute. Because when there's a fight nowadays, and thank God we've come to this, because back in the day, they didn't always arrest somebody. But if you go to, right. if the police are called to a house, Vicki, somebody's going to jail. Correct. And so, you know, that's, by the time we get there, they know they're in trouble. So, you know, you're going to put the poor victim up and she's going to recant, and then you're going to have to do what we call in the law, impeach her with her own prior testimony. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to show her a copy of the police report and say, didn't you, in fact, tell the police X, Y, Z? Right, and call, isn't this you know, a photo of you with these bruises all over your that's face? That's exactly right, because there right. will be photographic evidence, there will be documentary evidence in the form of emergency room reports, so you're going to have to put her up, impeach her, prove to the jury that for whatever reason, whether it's terror for herself or terror for somebody she loves or just fear she can't make it on her own, she's changing her story, but her first story was the truth. And you do that by calling her out on it, and then you call all the supporting witnesses. You put the emergency room doctor up, and you put the police officer up, and you enter the photographic evidence, and then you call an expert, a psychiatrist, to say to the jury This is why women recant. This is why they are changing their story now. And you just explain to them it is psychological warfare, and these women have been beaten down for so long that they're absolutely terrified at this point, and they can't help but recant. Mm -hmm. And when when you've prosecuted these cases, is it, when the abuser is there, the defendant is there, are these people usually repeat offenders, and this has been going on and on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a long, long cycle. Because here's the thing, Vicki, if this woman was strong enough to walk out the first time he hit her, we wouldn't be here. But what he's been able to do is control and manipulate and dominate her for so long. And, you know, this might be the 18th time that he's hit her, and it's finally come to a head where either the neighbors 
have called the police because what you're going to find in the majority of these cases, the victim isn't the one who calls 911, Vicky. It's a neighbor who hears mm-hmm. it and finally says, you know, I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. He's going to kill her. And, and I can't tell you how many times we hear that. He's going to kill her. So a neighbor will call. A neighbor will get involved. You know, and then the police will show up, and she'll try and minimize it, and she'll try and say, no, 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 it wasn't that bad. And what you're going to find out is there's no documentation. There's no police reports because she hasn't called the police before. But what you're going to be able to do is call all the surrounding people. You're going to put her mother on the stand, and her mother's going to say, since the day he married her, I've taken her to the ER eight times. Since the day he married her, I've been called over here and found her crying and bloody on the floor, and she's refused to go to the ER. Mm -hmm. The time he, you know, and the neighbors are going to say, "Man, I hear furniture breaking. I hear him screaming at her. I hear her crying." And that's where you're going to be able to prove that this is a pattern. This is an ongoing thing. But you are not going to find that you can call a police officer to the stand and say, "Haven't you been to that house 18 times before?" Because they didn't call the cops. And when it gets to this stage, it's somebody else who has intervened because they have truly just thought, oh, my God, he's going to kill her this time. And and with our last guest, we were talking about that many times women will leave between six and nine times before they leave for good. Absolutely, yeah. So they take it. They go back and they take it. That's exactly right, because they get out there, and unfortunately, a lot of these women don't have family members to go to. They don't have anybody to turn to, so they get out there. They're living in a shelter with their kids. There's eight room, you know, eight people to a room. It's not necessarily always clean. They don't have any privacy. They're sharing a kitchen with a bunch of other people, and these women begin to feel guilty. Like, what am I doing to my children? At least when I was with him, we had our own house. We had mm-hmm. our own place. We could close the door of the bedroom. When we started, you know, when he started beating me, I could keep the kids safe. But, you know, so they start to feel guilty, and they start to experience those feelings of worthlessness because a lot of times... She hasn't worked outside the home for the entire period of the marriage, so she might have been out of the workforce for eight years. She might not be able to just walk out there and get a job. I mean, especially in the economy, you know, the state the economy's in now. So she's sitting in that shelter day in and day out, and she's feeling like the failure he has told her she is for all this time. And so she says, he's right. I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't have any way to take care of my kids. I don't have a way to provide a house for them. Maybe he's right to beat me. Maybe I am a loser. And unfortunately, that psychological damage is going to come back over and over and over until she can get strong enough to find a place where she gets the counseling as well as the roof over her head. Exactly. And and I I think it takes some people a really long time to come to that Absolutely. that decision but uh in the long run they're certainly going to be and their kids are going to be much better off for it holly we're going to take a break and as soon as we come back i want to talk more about the um the uh physical and emotional rep- retribution and also how this affects the kids and your experience and what you've seen we'll be back in just a minute this is the vicky child show for hear women talk produced and broadcast by the zeus radio network please stay with us Hi folks, this is Private Investigator Vicki Childs, host of the Vicki Childs Show on Hear Women Talk Radio. How safe is your cell phone? Is someone listening to all your calls or reading your text messages? How about your computer? Is someone watching all your keystrokes? Or do you want to know what your child, your employee, or your spouse are doing on a computer or cell phone? If you need computer or cell phone forensics, do what I do. Talk to Steve Abrams at abramsforensics.com. Steve is a highly respected and skilled forensics expert as well as an attorney. 
Contact Steve Abrams for a free 15-minute consultation at abramsforensics.com. That's abramsforensics.com. Or click on the Abrams Forensics banner ad on Hear Women Talk and use promo code HWT. Welcome back to the Vicki Child Show. Our special guest is Holly Hughes, former prosecutor and now practicing lawyer in Atlanta. And Holly's had many, many years of prosecuting violent crimes. Uh, Holly, during the break, you and I were talking about the penalties that somebody can have for uh, committing these crimes, and I wanted you to tell our listeners what that is. Well, basically, it depends on what the injury is. If it is something uh, that's minimal, and of course no injury is minimal, but speaking technically, you know, if it's a bruise because you got slapped or you got pushed down or something like that, they're looking at a charge of family violence battery. Now, the first time it happens, it's a misdemeanor, which means the max is 12 months. But here's the great thing about Georgia. The second time it happens, it's automatically a felony, and that raises the penalty level. And furthermore, the great thing is it does not have to be the same victim. So it's not like an abuser can just change girlfriends, beat a different one, and keep getting misdemeanors. It doesn't matter if it is an intimate partner or somebody living in your household or somebody that you're cohabitating with, you know, whether it's a child or whatever, you can still be bumped up to that felony level. Now, usually, because I always prosecuted felonies, what we'll charge them with is either an aggravated assault or an aggravated battery. And sadly, you know, what we find is most of them are aggravated batteries because the beating is so severe. And in order to be an aggravated battery, you have to have some kind of permanent damage, so some kind of scarring, some kind of loss of limb or loss of use of a limb. You know, so even if he just breaks your arm to the point where, you know, you can still use it, but it's not going to be the same, then you're going to be able to charge them with aggravated battery instead of aggravated assault. The penalty range there is anywhere from 1 to 20 years. Now, it can be probation, but because of programs like yours and all of the awareness that's come out and the education of our jury pool, a judge is probably not, if this case goes to trial, there's not a judge that's going to give them probation. They are going to lock them up, and it can be anywhere from 1 to 20. You know, And if they're repeat offenders, then you're looking at a, a situation where they're what we call recidivists, and if the state files a recidivist notice, the judge has to impose the maximum penalty. So, you know, there are ways to get these guys. If there's three prior right. felonies on the record, then you can go ahead and make sure the judge has to give them that 20 years in prison. And if, the, if, if these assaults and, and domestic violence assaults are combined with a, a brutal rape um, oh, yes. Absolutely. Or, or near death, then... Right. Then it's well, yeah, oh, do you find that do you, uh, do, uh, one of the uh, listeners had this question, and, and I wanted to ask you: Do you find that other states' laws in this regard are similar to Georgia, or or, or have less or fewer penalties than uh, Georgia does? Well, actually, I think they're pretty much similar. And again, that goes to you know the fact that DV is now so public. You know, before it was, it's a very closed door type of crime. Nobody wants to admit, you know, that this, this great guy, and that's what we always hear, isn't it, Vicki? Oh, but he's such a great guy. Yeah, Scott you know, Peterson was a great guy, too. Right? Hello, that's exactly right. You know, oh, Ted Bundy so was nice. a great guy, too. You get right up to the point he murdered you, yeah. Right, you know, right. So that's what we hear. It's, it was a closed-door crime and what we call a back-door crime for so long. You know, the police used to roll up and say, oh, you know, you just take a walk and cool down. And then they'd pull the woman aside and say, well, don't make him mad. Mm-hmm. Hello? It doesn't matter what she does. He's going to be mad anyway because the problem isn't hers. It's his. 
It is a default in his character that makes him behave like this. So fortunately, because we've raised awareness and because there is now sensitivity training and there's specialized training given to our law enforcement officers about how to deal with this type of thing, the legislature, legislature, legislators, excuse me, across the country. <laughs> Easy for you to have, say. <laughs> I, right, yeah, I wish. Have enacted stronger penalties and have said, you know, this is not acceptable in, in a civilized society. You cannot just beat the, the heck out of your wife because you don't like something she's doing or not doing. So, yeah, it's gotten a lot better. Do in your experience when you've prosecuted these cases, do uh, the the people that have kids, the victims and the abusers who have kids, either with mm -hmm. each other or not, mm -hmm. uh, what what do you see happening in this cycle of violence what, with the kids? And and it's a scary, daggum thing. But what do you it, see there? It's horrifying. Well, you know, or you, do you see that some of these defendants have been abused themselves? Is is that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, we learn behavior. There's the old nature versus nurture argument. And I think it's a little bit of both, quite frankly. I don't think it's exclusive. I don't think it's mutually exclusive one or the other, you know. But we are always a product of our environment. You know, unless we have somebody like maybe a school teacher to intervene and take us under their wing or a Sunday school teacher or a kindly neighbor who's going to say, you know, that's not the way it is everywhere. But when you grow up in a household, now say you're a little boy, and you grow up in a household where daddy rules the roost, is mean, is denigrating, beats the heck out of mom all the time, you think that's normal. You are a child. You don't know any better. You don't have any idea that this isn't how all men act because you've not seen another example. And if you're a little girl growing up in that household, what you learn is, well, I have to be subservient. I have to take it. I have to do whatever he says, and if I get him mad, then it's my fault he beats me. So what you're doing is you're repeating that cycle, and that's why it is so tragic for a woman to stay in that situation because she thinks sometimes, well, if they've got a roof over their head and they have food, then I'm doing the best thing for my children. And the bottom line is, no, you're not, because psychologically you are scarring them for life. And they will become a product of that environment. Your girls will be victims and your boys will be abusers unless somebody intervenes, unless somebody steps in and says, this is not appropriate behavior. And it's okay to love your daddy. You can still love him, but you should not love what he does. And you should not accept what he does. You know, so it's, it's a lot right. of psychological counseling that's involved, or we will see the cycle repeated. Where do you think the saying comes from? Those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, and then you've got, you've got to know what went before and and what's acceptable and what's not. Right, and you have the the issue of oh, daddy's gone away to prison. It's all your fault because you told on him. Absolutely, and, and, and kids being upset about that as well. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, like the uh, the abusive cycle and the the emotional abuse on the children, the emotional abuse on the on the mother and, and I know we've talked mostly about women being victims here and I right. realize that men can be victims as well and sometimes absolutely. victims that is as well. absolutely true yeah on our show intimate partner homicide as a matter of fact a couple of weeks ago we highlighted the case of two men who were murdered you know and uh, the police won't look into it and again I mean one of the families the uh, the sheriff's department actually said oh she's a little bitty thing she couldn't possibly have murdered him she's too pretty to commit murder Literally, mm -hmm. this is what they were told. So they're not even investigating the disappearance of this man who was abused at her hands. And, you know, there were witnesses to it. His family saw how she treated him. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely, anybody can be a victim of domestic violence. 
And, and never mind the blight widows, right? Mm. <laughs> there are certainly there are certainly blight widows out there too. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, what we human beings can do to one another knows no end. Yeah, that's true. We um we 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 think sometimes, uh, or or I've <clears throat> excuse me, I've even found myself thinking sometimes uh, about why don't the women just leave? Why don't they just mm. get out? Or men? Why right. don't they just get out? Why do they go back between six and nine times? Right. And why do they continue to put themselves in this place? And um, and you and I, when we talked recently, we talked about the broad socioeconomic oh, scale yeah. that this Absolutely. is this is all the way across. You know, Scott Absolutely. Peterson and his wife were not poor. That's exactly um, right. And and Drew Peterson and his wives were not poor, but right. but it there is a a broad range here, and it, it crosses all of the socioeconomic. It, it absolutely does. You know, and if you you know if you watch television these days, you see it. You see the broad range. There is you know, the uh, that movie Sleeping with the Enemy, where mm-hmm. this was an extremely wealthy couple. This was a highly educated woman. This was a beautiful woman. I mean, come on, she was played by Julia Roberts. This right. is a woman who everybody would say she doesn't have confidence issues. She should know she can make it on her own. So it ranges from the top of the top all the way back down to the burning bed story, you know, where we saw she finally just couldn't take it anymore, and she lit him up in the bed one night and escaped with her children. So, you know, meanness knows no economic boundaries. It will cross all of them. And there are a host of reasons, but one of the things we haven't talked about yet, we've talked about isolation, manipulation, degradation. We have not talked about shame. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, shame plays a big part in this because sure, who it wants does. to admit that they failed? I couldn't make the marriage work. I couldn't make him stop beating me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't. And women don't realize, you know, you're not responsible for the entire universe. You can't change his behavior. What he does, that's on him. That yeah. doesn't mean you're worthless. You are worthwhile, but they are ashamed to admit that they failed, that they can't make it work, and they're also ashamed to let anybody else know. You know, I don't want my pastor to know what's going on behind closed doors. I don't want. And here's the thing that we need to get out to the women: tell somebody. Do not be ashamed. Who should be ashamed? The abuser is the one who should be ashamed of himself, not you, mm-hmm. not the person who's getting abused. And they need to understand there is no shame. The only shame belongs to the perpetrator of the crime, not to you, not to your children, not to your family, not to your reputation. The shame is all his. Yeah, so that's you very need to true. Get out and get help. And there's a fabulous book out by one of my partners, Susan Murphy Milano, called Time's Up. Yep, and Time's Up. Susan's going to be a guest on the show next yeah, week. Yeah, it is along a fabulous, with a- fabulous step by step telling women how to successfully do it without getting themselves killed. Yeah, and 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 I'm glad you brought um, Susan up. She is the author of Defending of Our Defending Our Lives and Times Up. She's an expert in the area of intimate partner violence and the prevention of homicide. And she and Sandra Brown, who's a therapist and author of Women Who Love Psychopaths and How to Spot a Dangerous Man. Uh, she's also the CEO of the Institute for Relational Harm. Uh, reduction in public pathology education. Both of them are going to be my guests next week to continue the conversation about domestic violence. And Holly, thank you so much for being on today and talking about the prosecution and the victims and all that that, that encompasses and, and the penalties associated with it. I think you brought great insight to uh, to the problem and I hope our listeners gained from that. We talked earlier today about websites that 
that our listeners could go to, and I will post those on my PI Answers group. I hope you'll stay with us next week when we have Susan Murphy-Milano and Sandra Brown on and continue the conversation. Bring your questions, bring your comments for our guest, and we'll be sure and get those on. Holly, thanks again, and good luck in your in your endeavors over in Atlanta. Thank you so much. I, I want to leave our it. listeners today, I'll leave you with a quote that I found. This is a quote by Dorothy Bernard. It says, courage is fear that has said its prayers. So let fear say your prayers and, and get some courage. And if you're in this situation, get the courage to leave, get help, get counseling. Tell somebody, like Holly said, tell somebody. Don't live with it alone. I look forward to next week's show, and thank you for joining us on Hear Women Talk, produced and broadcast by the Zeus Radio Network, and we'll see you next week. Stay tuned at 1 o'clock today for the Dottie Laster Show, Trafficked, where Dottie will be dealing with trafficking issues. Thanks, Holly, and I'll see everybody next week.